You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is critic and YouTube creator Celeste de la Cabra. Celeste, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I am so happy to have you back on to talk about Ishiro Honda. Thank you so much for renewing your invitation to have me back. Uh, I really do appreciate that. I'm excited as well. These are some pretty interesting, fun films here, and I think we'll have a pretty productive, robust discussion. So I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Before we dig into some housekeeping and uh, dig into the the meat of the conversation, uh, how have things been going? How are things going with your channel? Uh, What's been going on with you? So I lost my job at the end of January, and I wanted to use that opportunity to like really hone in and focus on the channel and like make it better and put out a bunch of content and fucking like (laughs) kickstart a bunch of growth in this time that I'd have all this free time. And, and then it turns out I just went into a major depressive episode and didn't do anything. So that didn't happen, but I did like upgrade my editing software and some of my hardware and took a break from the channel to actually work on making the videos better on a technical level because Mm. I'm very happy where they are in terms of their content, in terms of the writing that I do for it and the presentation and our banter and things like that. I'm happy with all that, but I think there's definitely, we're not even close to the ceiling in terms of how good I can make them on a technical level. And so I'm trying to dedicate some time to improving that side of things. But I did finally upload a video after about two and a half months of vacation, as it were, if you could call it that. And I am working again. So I have like, I have that stressor taken off of me and um, I have some more videos ready to go. I just gotta, I just gotta cut them together, but I promise it hasn't gone anywhere. There's a new video, relatively new video up right now. And uh, there's going to be more in the future. So, and we're almost at a thousand subscribers, which I'm really excited about. So if anyone listening hasn't subscribed yet, that would be pretty dope. Awesome. I I totally understand though, those those life stressors and mm-hmm. when things get taken off your plate, you think, oh, this is great. I'm going to dedicate to the creative projects that mm-hmm. I really want to work on. And then it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's a bummer, you know, uh-huh. but I understand then there's that. like, there's the stress of this situation that I didn't choose to be in, but then mm-hmm. there's like the guilt of like, I'm not even using this opportunity productively, which is such a I capitalist know. way to think that, I, hate, <laughs> I know. but like it, it's hard to escape, you know? <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I get it so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Well, before we dig into the conversation on uh, Ishiro Honda, I do want to make sure to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Really, thank you so much. Uh, Your support really helps keep the show going and helps make sure that uh, we can keep uh, producing episodes and and keep the the show running. So thank you so much. If you want to join Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck and support the show there. All supporters get early access to the show and we've moved the conversations about the new releases for the month into the patreon portion of the show so celeste and i just wrapped up a conversation about the april new releases and had some lovely conversations about david lynch and about the erotic thrillers and uh, many other things there talked about the fun of uh, using art to spur us on to action and to comfort us in difficult times as well so it's been a great patreon only conversation and uh, you can get in on that if you subscribe to the patreon channel as well yeah as a patreon subscriber i would i would co-sign that recommendation and as a person who has i guess technically listened to the conversation that we just had i thought it was pretty good so <laughs> and often i i think that the the patreon portions are my favorite part of the show so to any of the any of the plebs out there that haven't subscribed uh you know get on it that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to continue our conversation about the films of Ishiro Honda that are only available as part of the Criterion Channel's uh, streaming only section of the the channel. These are permanent collection titles that aren't going anywhere. They they may or may not get released on disc, but uh, as of right now, they're part of the the permanent collection there. We talked last time about Rodan, the Mysterians, and Varen, the Unbelievable. And after Varen, Honda made a few more dramas. Uh, it's been fun to kind of look at his filmography and, and again see the the types of things that, that he did. Um, he did some romance films. He did a sports movie. He did uh, some science fiction dramas. Uh, he did Mothra kind of launched the the Mothra series of films. And then he did the Japanese dub on the Soviet Finnish production called Sampo. So he, he had this extraordinary variety and versatility as a director in these years. And Josh, he, I don't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, but no, you just okay. brought up you just brought up Sampo and yeah. uh, there's a there's a uh, one of the OCN Vinegar Syndrome partner labels, Deaf Crocodile, which specializes in film restoration and kind yeah. of underseen art house stuff. They put out an edition of Sampo a few months ago that I've been meaning to check out. I didn't know that Ishiro Honda was, you know, tangentially related or involved with that. So that's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't realize but there is a nice either. version of that. That's good. If anyone's interested. (laughs) But then in 1963, he released two of the the three films we're going to talk about today. And on the channel, they're uh, reversed. They're just released uh, alphabetically. But the first one that was actually released in 1963 was, I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation. I'll do my best, but Matango. And this is an absolutely fascinating film. This is one that I keep hearing when when we released our first episode on uh, Honda's films. This is the one that I heard people saying, I can't wait till you talk about Matango. And so I do think that this is really fascinating, really interesting, very dark, 
really different than a lot of Honda's films. It is about a group of friends who are castaways on an island. And it's an island in which uh, even the birds who come close to it decide, yeah, no, this place isn't for me. And they fly away. So there's there's no food on the island. And the only food that they can find uh, beyond some of the, the few root vegetables and turtle eggs and a few other things that they can scavenge is a mushroom that they believe is dangerous and has some potentially uh, hallucinogenic and maybe other deadly properties. So it it's more of a drama, more of a survival story, and uh, then it begins to take on some some darker monster proportions as well. So that's the that's just the brief encapsulation of it, just to to get us into it. But uh, Celeste, what did you think about Matango when you watched it when you started getting into it? So I think this one is a banger. It's my favorite of the three that we're going to talk about. And it's one of his better films, I think. I know that last time we had talked about how Honda likes to revisit a lot of the same themes and messages in his films. And I think that the other two here get closer to that. But when when I read the little the little blurb kind of selling me on it on the channel, I was like, ooh, this sounds fun. This sounds really interesting. And yeah. uh, you know, as I started to get more into it, I was like, wow, I don't think any of those like standard go-to themes that we had discussed are present in this. Maybe a little bit, but not really as overtly or as it didn't feel like I was watching a different version of the same idea as I yeah. often sometimes do uh, with his stuff. This felt really like swinging for the fences and doing something completely different and doing something more in the realm of like a straight horror film or like a straight survival thriller. Kind of like, I don't know, it has a very like Lord of the Flies feel to it, but yeah, adults, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, but I was I was a really big fan of it. Some of the, there's a lot of characters and to me, they were a little hard to keep track of. But other than that, that's like on me, honestly. So I really like this one. And I especially felt that it came together at the at the very end and uh, thought that that was a very effective way to close it. Yeah, I think it has this this slow building dread throughout mm-hmm. that I think, you know, he's honed this throughout his other films, right? Where you have kind of small incidents of monsters attacking or you have... You know, in in Rodan, you have the the little caterpillars that do things, and then it leads up to you know the big devastation of Rodan. And here you have the the ship that gets you know destroyed by the storm, and and you have the fact that they're they're running out of supplies, they're adrift, and you see the tension simmering between this group of friends. You see the ways that the fractures in their relationships you see you know you have these wealthy people who are who own the boat you have the the celebrity you know the the singer and the writer and you have the professor and his teaching assistant and you have this kind of all of these people from different strata in society who begin to have these um and you and you have the fisherman who also helps run the boat too and so again you have these different class issues going on too and and i find that the way those those class divides begin to also lay out the conflict between the characters really rich and really much more satisfying because the monsters the 
the the creatures that eventually we eventually discover are never something that is as overt as you know the the giant monster that comes in and that we all have to unite to destroy it's something almost that comes from within it, it, exactly that's exactly yeah. what i was gonna say yeah. it's not like this giant external danger it's like a manifestation of internal struggle or environmental shall we say concerns or whatever you know yeah uh, it's a much more human focused story, I guess, where even mm-hmm. the monsters are just alterations of human beings this time, as opposed to literal monsters, though there are shots in this where I was like, shit, that was like actually scary, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it still has that going for it. Yeah. And, you know, it relies so much on sound, the sound design. I, I noticed throughout these films, the sound design was especially striking. The the mushroom stuff was very eerie and really haunting i watched most of it with my headphones on and uh, towards the end of the night as i was watching just the last little bit of it i unplugged the headphones and my cat was not a fan of what was going <laughs> on on screen <laughs> oh okay so we got one bad review from your cat that's okay it, it's, it's, okay. it's okay. okay to have different opinions you know that's right that's right he did not like the mushroom stuff that was happening there in the, towards the end yeah, I, I think this is, even though it isn't as overtly interested in, you know, the the same kind of nuclear bomb themes, we still have, you know, as the castaways come to the island, they discover this shipwreck, and mm-hmm. it looks like the shipwreck, the ship was exploring or uh, investigating or experimenting with radiation. So we still have some of the things that he was interested in, just in such a subtler way. And so we don't know if the radiation was the cause of what was happening or if this this island itself was the cause of everything. And so I, I, I appreciate that so much is left vague and left for us to uncover the true cause of what was happening there. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't considered how that might tie into our go-to themes of nuclear bomb and that sort of thing. I guess it hadn't occurred to me to really think about why the mushrooms are so invasive, but also hostile to the point where, like you said, even birds, even birds don't want to fuck with it, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I kind of just had that as a built in given to explore the interpersonal dynamics. And Mm -hmm. there's clearly this like addiction angle going on as well, which I'm not entirely sure where like it's clearly there. I'm not sure what is attempting to be said with it. I was reading that it that some people have theorized that it is kind of like a reaction to a lot of the more drug heavy films and culture mm. of the time as kind of like a maybe maybe an overcorrection or maybe just like a hey, you know, let's not forget the negative <laughs> consequences of heavy drug use and of addiction, you know. Yeah. But I think that it's also just a really interesting kind of avenue to further explore this very kind of bleak, nihilistic, pessimistic view that the film seems to take of human beings and their relationships to one another and how yeah. much of that, how much of that kind of societal kindness and the structures that keep us compassionate to each other and helping each other out, how much of that is just like arbitrary or is only there because basic necessities have been met. And how much of that goes away once you take that from people. And I think especially at the end when he's basically like, yeah, that shit was awful. That really sucked. But like now that I'm back here, all I see is more of the same. And like, Mm -hmm. I kind of wish I just stayed in this like kind of drug addled haze with a pretty girl, you know, as Mm -hmm. opposed to like the way the closing shot 
where we kind of zoom out of his has a his hospital into this like very neon colored sort of city view it it really kind of to me was like a like a very overt like knock against like capitalism and against like that kind of industrialization of human beings and how that kind of maybe this is a thought that is occurring to me right now so i haven't vetted yeah. this or anything no, okay. but like i love it <laughs> it's like in the island setting we've explored how human beings are when we've stripped them of their like biological necessities like food and water right and then it kind of juxtaposes this in the ending with how human beings are when you strip them of their more spiritual needs when you strip them of their capacity for searching for meaning and you know, there's a lot to read into one shot, but it's like a lot of what capitalism does is it kind of forces us to set aside all of our time working for someone else and like creating value for someone else, doing something that more often than not, we don't actually care about in these sorts yeah. of passionate pursuits that I and I think a lot of other people feel is what is more natural to the human condition to pursue. These sorts of things have to be put on the back burner or eliminated entirely. And I guess I just saw a parallel of the capitalist society that he has escaped back into being just as bad as the starving, drug-addled, kind of primitive island that he had just left. I hope that that all made sense. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I like that because that same shot is what opens the film too mm -hmm. right and i think there's a there's a symmetry there that i think it's really an important parallel and so i yeah i think that's that's a good a good read there thank you yeah <laughs> i also think as you were talking about the 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 ways that these characters become less connected to one another as the and become more fractured during the the mm -hmm. time that they're they're on the island I also think it's interesting how we see those rifts and we see the tensions. We see the the fact that maybe these, these characters aren't necessarily the best people from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. We see the, the singer throwing the manuscript into the water. That uh, really bothered me. <laughs> I was like, too. what the fuck? Why would you do that? Like, As a writer. He that... was like, oh, <laughs> he, he was like 5% of the amount of anger like angry that i would have felt in that moment i would have like oh my god uh -huh. just the rage the rage yes. that yes. i felt in that moment I, I forgot about that until you said it <laughs> yeah and all of the, the there's this kind of with with all of the men that were up there and the way they leer and treat the singer mm -hmm. and and then you find out that maybe she's kind of in a relationship with the owner of the boat mm -hmm. maybe but it's not really clear how that all works i think what it was implying is that she very cynically like slept with him to get something that she wanted yeah. out of him and now that yeah. that pretense was put aside she was like actually you suck and you're ugly just so you know you know yeah. <laughs> like so it's it's there there are all of these 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 ways that the characters are even before things fall apart the, the ways they treat each other and i think even the professor who who is there with his teaching assistant there's something uncomfortable about him bringing this this young woman mm -hmm. who he has power over onto this boat and she does not feel comfortable being on the boat she's seasick she doesn't want to be there she's pressured into saying yeah it's okay we can stay through the storm we can ride out the storm I'm, I'm okay with that she's being pressured by everyone to do that and then when one of the other men comes up and tries to flirt with him, her you know he gets jealous and possessive of her and there's just all of this 
this swirling dysfunction within the group already that only intensifies once they once they are stranded and uh so i i think even from the beginning they are not a group of characters i think the only character i feel any remote amount of sympathy for is akiko the teaching assistant yeah <laughs> the the way that you've kind of outlined this how you're right there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these people are not super awesome even before they're put into this position that magnifies their worst intuitions this kind of has me thinking like if it these aren't real human beings they're characters that have been written right but if they were human beings like they must have some good attributes somewhere right (laughs) and so the choice to only focus on these negative attributes and to show how those negative attributes become magnified it kind of just it leads me to believe that or it backs up this idea that I had that this film is really, really pessimistic about the nature of human beings and which parts of ourselves come out when shit hits the fan or when we're in a difficult position. You know, there's not a lot of hope in this one that I was able to glean, you know? No, I think this is the one that is probably, I I think this is the bleakest film I've seen upon this Mm -hmm. yet. Yeah, because there's nothing... There's no sense of triumph. Uh, there's you know, no sense that we are going to survive. There's no sense that uh, you come back from this uh, unchanged and unscathed. It feels, uh, honestly, it feels pretty realistic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's this very, you know, I'm going to get bleak myself. It feels like this clear-eyed view of the worst qualities of human nature, right? Uh, um, yeah and and maybe maybe what he was seeing in selfishness there's a selfishness and greed to all of these to a lot of these characters especially as you see you know so many of them trying to hoard food or trying to steal food from the pantry when they do have a, a mm-hmm. small store from the the shipwreck when you see them the the fisherman has been able to gather a good supply of the the root vegetables and turtle eggs and one of the rich men is trying to buy an extra supply of, of food for, for himself and is yeah. you know, paying him you know lots of money to be able to have some food. It just, you, you see this, everything's come down to this kind of transactional nature of relating to each other. Yeah. Is there anything else that uh, stands out to you in, in the film? Anything that... I know we've talked a lot about the the bleak pessimism of it. Anything in the special effects, anything in the, the filmmaking style? I think that the way that this film treats women is really interesting because for, I want to say, a significant portion of it, it doesn't really come up to the extent that I actually had the thought like, eh, these people are not great, but at least they haven't like, you know done anything especially heinous to these women that are clearly outnumbered and that was probably 10 minutes before that exact thing happens (laughs) and i was like oh okay like you got the guy who's just overtly saying it like oh the reason why we're suffering is because like you know fucking we can't come in these girls or whatever like just this awful stuff and then like everybody's like doesn't say anything and he's like see you agree and i'm like it kind of seems like they do they're not saying anything you know and then like one guy is like fuck that and pulls a gun on him and i was like at least we got one i guess i don't know yeah i think it's interesting because i do think that the ways that again it's showing how how terrible these men are especially and i and i think that the the singer herself is actually a pretty a pretty awful character herself Mm -hmm. she's just as as selfish 
and just mm-hmm. as as driven by her own her own greed and her mm-hmm. own self-interest and mm-hmm. and i think that the film doesn't shy away from the darker impulses in masculinity mm-hmm. and i think that to me is again it's 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 being honest about these things and it's it's not turning away from it and and making this uh, you know i think so many films of this era when they would do castaway stories they'd be almost idyllic at times about the ways sure. that men and women could get together and get along and or it would be you know lord of the flies right and and i think this this is 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 pretty honest about the ways that that especially these powerful men who already are not treating these women with especially you know when we we think about the way that the the rich man who owns the boat the way he has talked about the uh, singer uh, previously and and the way his jealousy uh, seeps in uh, as she starts to begin to have a romance with the writer mm-hmm. we already we already see the ways that he has begun to get possessive of her so i th- mm-hmm. i think that there are these these undercurrents throughout even if it's not kind of the main theme of it, it's all there. Mm-hmm. It's all built into this overarching story about some of the the darker impulses within human nature. Yeah, I think that the way that the men treat the two women in this scenario, they're almost treated like the same as like the food. They're treated yeah. as like a resource yeah. or like a means of obtaining power or showing power, right? And there's just something to be said about the scene where this one dude, it, it, it says something to me that in the film's perspective, if you, how many male characters are there? Is it like five or six? I believe we've got the two richer men, we've got the writer, we've got the professor, and then we have the fisherman. So yeah, five. Okay, five. So in a, in, a, in a situation where there's five men, one of them is like overtly, violently misogynistic. Yeah. Three of them are not willing to call that out. And only one of them is willing to yeah. speak up about that. I mean, honestly, I, I would not argue that ratio. <laughs> and it's not a super great look yeah <laughs> or a yeah. very pessimist or a very optimistic way to look at the impulses of yeah. men specifically you know yeah no this to me is so far my favorite film that i've seen from Ishiro honda besides the original godzilla i think this is there's so much going on here this is so rich in its themes and in its ideas i feel like this is one that i could rewatch and pick more things out of the mushroom monsters are really frightening you know they're they're eerie they're eerie creatures and and i love the ways that when when characters eat the mushrooms it takes them into this reverie where they remember their happiest moments or um, we see that especially when the writer takes it takes a bite for the first time Mm -hmm. you see him oh he's writing his masterpiece suddenly and he's in this almost dreamlike state that he can envision being in the club and writing a masterpiece and it's sad and it is haunting and it's a chilling chilling film yeah i guess my closing thought i think this is maybe what i was trying to get out earlier there's a moment i think it's when the two women are doing all the laundry and all the dishes that they're kind of like it's kind of fucked up that we got to be the ones that do all of this you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and they have that moment of camaraderie until you kind of see the singer as she's definitely 
ruthless in what she's willing to do. Like she throws the other girl under the bus on like as soon as she gets the opportunity. But I don't know that I would call this an overtly feminist film, but I think that the way that it explores this dynamic, like I don't know that anything that she does is entirely maybe I shouldn't make a claim quite that bold, but I think that most of her behavior is in the interest of self-preservation rather than necessarily overtly selfish Mm. things. Like when I see the dude hoarding eggs to sell, you know, to just get ahead monetarily, that feels to me like a pretty selfish thing in and of itself. But, you know, you kind of have the example where she slept with the ship's captain to get ahead. And you see where she charms the guy with a gun so as to not get shot. You know what I mean? Like, and it feels very evil and it feels very, especially because she's in this like marginalized position where she should be, you know, ideally supporting the other person in that position. But I think that it's kind of a microcosm of how women are forced to be in just regular society where like women are often framed as having a lot of power when they can use their sexuality for their own gain. But in actuality, most of what that is, is like using that to gain some amount of power from men who have like the actual power in that situation and who are doling it out to these women. You know what I mean? So I just think that that's a really interesting example or a really interesting way that that sort of dynamic is explored. And yeah, I think that's the end of that thought there. (laughs) No, that's great. I think that's a great reminder uh, that that character is not... That there's a difference between selfishness and self-interest and uh, mm-hmm. self-preservation. That self-preservation, when you're living in a misogynistic society, you do what you have to do to survive. Yeah, I mean, there's that scene where the two men are quite literally fighting over her and just the look of glee on her face. And she's like bragging about it to the other woman. She's like, they clearly want me. And like that does feel kind of vicious and kind of evil. But it's also like, I think it's clear what is on the table in terms of what these men are willing to do and to be in a position where they are doing things for you is a good position to be in. You know what I mean? Like in terms of your own survival. So yeah, I'm not going to sit here and say that this person was entirely virtuous. I just think (laughs) that there's more context surrounding why she engages in these behaviors. Yeah. It's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. That's good. I, I think, I think this to me again is, is my favorite of the film's, but I, I do think the other ones are, are really interesting, too. I enjoyed them all to varying degrees. I don't think we have any VAR and the Unbelievables in this batch <laughs> of films. Let's move on to Atragon, which uh, cool. I think is a fascinating film. You know, I, I don't know that any of the films that we watched in this bundle had full-on giant monster, you know, attacking a city, man in a rubber suit, dealing with miniatures. I don't think we had any of that this time, did we? So uh, in Atragon, we kind of had the the dragon guy. That was yeah. pretty sick. But yeah, it wasn't was... quite it wasn't quite to the extent of like yeah. laying waste to a city, you know. Yeah. But I to me it didn't look like it was a, a person in a suit that time. Or was it? No, yeah. no, I'm not sure about that. And at, at least for Dogara, it definitely wasn't. So, yeah, yeah. So it it was. It's been different, different special effects techniques, which I find really mm-hmm. interesting. That uh, as 
even as he's still doing Godzilla films, even as he's still doing giant monster movies, he's also exploring different special effects styles. And so I I find that really cool that he's expanding his repertoire and Mm -hmm. learning how to play with different different ways of conveying these stories. So yeah, I think this to me is one that I, I found the scale and the scope really fascinating, even if the story isn't particularly riveting at all times. Yeah. But it's an interesting, interesting story. So we've got people from the uh, lost continent of Mu who are kidnapping individuals from around the world and they have now threatened to destroy the world and they want to reassert their dominance over the globe and claim the rest of the earth as their colonies and they're showing how powerful they are. They've laid waste to Venice and Hong Kong through newspaper flashes we don't see any of the violence that time and uh yeah <laughs> i actually rewinded it i was like wait what did i miss something i was like oh no okay <laughs> yeah the people from moon just look just like regular humans except that they radiate uh, special body heat that lets you know they're they they're from moo and this leads us to sending a crew to find a former World War II naval officer who refused to surrender and has been building Atragon, a special elite submarine that has the power to defeat the armies of Mu. But the armies of Mu are also looking for Atragon because they want to destroy it themselves. So the race to find and destroy or use Atragon is uh, the the heart of the, the narrative here. And uh, part of the team finding the commander is uh, the commander's daughter, some journalists, and uh, the commander's former superior officer. So there's some interesting ideas there. I think that the it's all kind of perfunctory and really to get us to the big action sequences of it. But I, I did think that the most interesting part of this for me is this idea of an isolated military officer who just cannot let his militarism go and the desi- the desire that no this this weapon is only going to be used for Japan and we're going to assert our mm-hmm. dominance as well and so you've got mm-hmm. the colonialism of the Mu Empire against the the colonial ambitions of this Japanese uh, naval officer and uh, those kind of ideals or ideologies uh, in conflict with one another, which I found really fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Me too. That I agree is the most interesting part of it is just how overtly we're kind of skewering patriotism and nationalism here. Yeah. You know, I don't even, I wouldn't even, it's, it's not even subtext. Like they just kind of yeah. say it to his face. Like, Hey man, you're being dumb as shit. Like this is yeah. not, this is not the way to be like, it's, we're not really, you know, we're kind of moved past that. We're not really into the whole war thing anymore. So, you know, you need to catch up. Like, I don't know what you're doing here. And he's like, He's doing it at the cost of his own daughter and his own family and his really just everything that makes him like a human being. He's like literally just made himself a vessel for the state and that's it, you know, Yeah. to the detriment of all of humanity. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an extreme example, but it, it gets the point across, I think. This felt very similar structurally to me, to the Mysterians, this idea of this external force that is threatening annihilation and the nations of the world have to put aside their nationalist tendencies and come together for the good of the entire planet. 
it kind of seems to be asserting the need for unity on a on a global level and this sort of dissolving of borders that the Mysterians was also kind of pushing for, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it it was it's very similar in in style, in story structure to that. The thing that that I liked about this one is that we actually get to see the culture of this mm-hmm. these would-be colonizers. So we get to understand them a little bit more. We get to know about them a little bit more, even if you know there's no real attempt to empathize with them much, except maybe at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that was actually really lovely. But and um, we can get there later. But but the fact that we get to see their rituals, we get to see more of the the way their society is organized. It's something that I felt was maybe missing from the Mysterians that I didn't even know I was missing that from that from mm-hmm. that film. I, I do think, you know, we don't get enough in this of the different nations coming together to try to figure out how to address the issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, okay, you, you guys go, go find this, go find Atragon so that we can fight it. And, and that becomes the whole narrative story. But I, I liked the, the idea of, of let's, let's dig into this other culture a little bit more. So that was yeah. fascinating. Yeah, one of my favorite story beats in this is as opposed to the Mysterians where we see extended sequences of like negotiations, there's just like a news bulletin where they were like, the UN took about 10 minutes to tell them to eat shit and that they're not going to do anything about it. It's I know. really funny to me. There were a lot of those moments where I feel like they just uh, glided over uh-huh. what should be really important storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I did think that some of the special effects work in here was really impressive. Uh, the yeah. the scenes of the the soldiers getting into Atragon uh, for the first time, where you know it's definitely blue screen work and it's definitely you know superimposed, uh, standing on top of the model. But I I don't think that we've seen that level of sophistication before in these films where you have just the people on you know superimposed on top of what's obviously a a model getting into a model i i was impressed i was impressed by the way they were able to make all of those pieces fit together yeah i think the uh the special effects are definitely like the main attraction here and are probably the most ambitious of the films that we've discussed uh, there's just a lot of different styles happening all at once and it's kind yeah. of like constant yeah, I think that I was reading that this is actually part of like a genre of like, like it's literally just called special effects films where it's yes. like a showcase for that kind of thing, which makes sense. I, I do think that the pacing of the actual storytelling certainly struggles as a result mm-hmm. of that. This this one, I, I was struggling a little bit to pay attention at some parts. Uh, <laughs> that was partially due to personal things that were happening at the time, but it was also like, you know, I didn't have that problem with the last one. So I, I did struggle with it in that aspect, but it is one where like, when I think back on it today, I watched it yesterday, I'm kind of like liking it more in retrospect than I did actually like sitting down to watch it. Like there's a <laughs> lot of really cool ideas and images in that. I do really like all the stuff 
where we're like underwater seeing their rituals and stuff. I think it's interesting how much of it is just like ancient Egypt. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's cool to see. And it's always fun to watch 600 extras do it, do like a ritual dance, right? So Yes, yes. I love the fact, uh, as I was doing some research for it, I love the fact that most of those extras, most of the court were American military wives. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, there's something that's very uh, funny about that. I mean, I, I know that <laughs> that a lot of Americans, you know, living there ended up working on uh, Japanese film sets. And, you know, I, I know that happened. But there's something really funny to me about occupying, an occupying force playing would-be colonizers. That <laughs> and... is a kind of poetic irony, huh? <laughs> I know, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, again, you know, special effects were great. I was reading that they got a hold of working aqua lungs that cost a lot of money so that they could do some of those mm-hmm. underwater sequences. So they're doing real underwater work to to do some of this really impressive special effects work. So it's pretty impressive what they're working on. The There's some fun stuff with a freezing cannon to freeze the superheated agents of the Mu Empire. I, I do think that, you know, we're introduced to a couple of really great memorable agents of the Mu Empire. And yet, then after they fulfilled their plot purposes, they just kind of disappear and we don't get to have showdowns with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, you know, again, some plotting uh, weaknesses there. Yeah, those scenes where they just freeze people to death were honestly kind of shocking to me. It kind of I was kind of taken aback by it. I was like, that's pretty that's pretty harsh. Yes. Just like just like killing people, you know? <laughs> Which I guess kind of dovetails into what I think is so interesting about the ending of this, mm-hmm. which would be the last major thing that I wanted to talk about, which is like throughout you kind of have this idea like with the Japanese general who is like super militaristic and like the people that he says has since betrayed these values they're just kind of like hey man we don't really fuck with war anymore like you're kind of embarrassing yourself like that's just not where we're at you know like cut it out and so I'm kind of like okay so we're doing like a fully like a flatly anti-war kind of message here right but then they're kind of like but we need your big giant military weapon to kill the civilization of people and i'm like okay (laughs) that's a little bit different than what you just said so it kind of flirts with this idea of entirely pacifistic thinking but it also kind of bites the bullet that like sometimes there is a common enemy that we need to unite to eradicate you know I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I think that it's interesting that it tries to do both. You know, it kind of I mean, the example that I kind of think of is like Nazi Germany, where like it's sort of that feels relevant in that they're kind of explicitly telling this person who wants to continue conflict that like, hey, cut it out. Like, we're not into that anymore. You know? Yeah. This that's kind of the example I think of of like a pretty overt example of a common enemy that should just be gone, you know, by any means necessary. And like, that's kind of the idea that I feel like is being explored here. And I don't think that they're in the wrong for doing that. Like, like they'd kind of just like wipe out entire cities, which mm-hmm. I think could be, you could make some parallels again to the atomic bomb and to America's behavior. So yeah, I don't know. There's some pretty bold and pretty interesting political statements going on here. Yeah. I feel like I opened a lot of questions there without really answering them, but you know, there's, there's pretty major ideas being explored here maybe not to the extent that i had wished they were but i think it's interesting that they go to the empress who by the way has some pretty killer fits throughout this big fan (laughs) they go to her and they're like hey let's do some peace talks and she's like fuck you and they're like okay cool we're gonna kill all of you then so it's like you know they they take the time to like 
prioritize a peaceful resolution, but it does ultimately bite the bullet that like that doesn't always work. And sometimes you got to kill some dudes like that's interesting to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, if we look at it, you know, we actually do see them attacking one. We do see one attack of the move soldiers on a on a population. And it is horrifying, honestly. We see mm-hmm. the the discs that fly out, and at first it looks like okay, they're attacking the military and the the people that are a danger to the Mu Empire. Sure, okay, that's that's what we come to expect. But then you know it blows up a ferry that is going to be evacuating people who are trying to get off the island, and it's devastating to see that. So you you do yeah, you're right. You get the sense that there is a there are genocidal tendencies. Mm-hmm. among the moo people but it is very striking that the response of the characters that we're supposed to be rooting for is to just wipe out the moo mm-hmm. empire as well right and so yeah it's very uh it's very disturbing at the end uh but yeah. i but i think that the film also wrestles with that too because the empress uh-huh. as as the the moo empire is being destroyed as it's as we see explosions and as we see that it is being destroyed, she leaves Atragon. She could, she could survive. She was their prisoner. She dives off Atragon and Mm -hmm. swims uh, toward it, uh, towards her certain death, essentially. And there is a a sense of sadness uh, there that, that it came to that. So I, Mm -hmm. I I think, I think he, you know, I, I don't think it's completely successful, but I do think there is this sense of, did it have to come to this? Did we have to lose so much life over this conflict? Couldn't we have come to a peaceful resolution? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if maybe, you know, again, this is not Honda's best film, but I'm wondering whether there is a part of this that is that, did we have to to come to this, the point that we came to in World War II? Did, yeah. we, ha- did we have to get to the point where atomic bombs were dropped on innocent people wasn't there a place where we could have backed off and and come to peace talks so i I wonder if that's some of what what honda's wrestling with in the film yeah i I agree that it is kind of of two minds about the necessity of some of this brutality versus the tragedy that it has to happen in the first place you know yeah i think there's some interesting things it raises if if imperfectly right yeah for sure yeah well, the final film we're going to be talking about today is Dogura, which has some wild special effects in it. Yeah, that's that's like the coolest part of it, I think, is like how interesting the effects are, not just in how they're executed, but just the sheer ideas of like mm-hmm. this sort of carbon sucking thing that like pulls smokestacks off and like there's just like it has people floating for no reason. It's just like really <laughs> wild stuff that is fun to watch. <laughs> yes. And, and I also love that there's something, you know, again, I, I enjoyed this one quite a bit, but it is a weird movie because it's blending. Sure these, is. <laughs> these special effects, these special effects movies with your crime dramas. And you've got an American diamond insurance inspector who knows karate uh-huh. and <laughs> it's it's a weird movie and and i think that's part of what makes it so much fun to watch right <laughs> yeah i i i i kind of i liked it i was like man this is trying to be a lot of things at once and this is really just all over the place and i'm kind of here for it so <laughs> yeah 
Well, it's it's the story, you know, it opens with a satellite that has been launched into space. It's a new TV satellite, and then it gets destroyed by some mysterious space entity. And the next thing we know, there is a group of diamond thieves trying to break into a safe, and the same mysterious space entity is breaking into the safe and scaring them away. And uh, the space entity takes all the diamonds. And we learn that there are the, there's this rash of diamond thefts across the globe. And the police are trying to track down the crew that's doing it. They think it's the same crew. They think it's this man, Mark Jackson, but really Mark Jackson turns out to be a diamond uh, insurance inspector who's trying to to infiltrate these groups and trying to stop them. And the the actual diamond thief is this this space creature, Dogara, who wants to or who needs carbon based substances to survive. And so it's getting uh, coal and diamonds wherever it can and causing destruction everywhere so yeah it's a it's a wild wild film (laughs) you did a better job of keeping track of the plot mechanics there than i did i really was not following at a certain point Oh, the di- well, and, and the diamond thieves, we lose them for a little bit, then we get back to them, and then they try to double cross each other. And yep. It's, mm-hmm. it's there's just, a lot of it's crazy. There's a lot of double crossing, double agent mm-hmm. sort of wacky hijinks going on that I'm just like, okay, sure. Yeah. We'll yeah. just move along with that then. <laughs> Mark works with the police, then doesn't work with the police, then disappears mm-hmm. for a little bit, then comes in at the end, then there's dynamite, uh, dynamite throwing uh, gangster with glasses. Uh, Sure. Um, and uh, all the while, they're spraying wasp venom on the Dogoda creatures to uh, to crystallize them. And so we've got giant rock Dogoda versions falling out of the sky in the midst of the gunfight. Uh, right. It's, it's a real it's uh, kitchen everything. sink type film, huh? <laughs> it's everything you want in a movie, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> But I do think, like you said, the special effects are the the coolest thing in this. Dogura, the imagery itself is really impressive. Yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah. In terms of the special effects, I could have sworn that there was like a straight up animation sequence in this. And I remember seeing it and being like, hell yeah, that's so sick. And then when I was reading the like special effects section on the Wikipedia, like, and it was talking about the ways that they achieve some of these and the various degrees of success. I didn't see that mentioned at all. And I was like, wait, did I make that up? Like, <laughs> Was there was there an animation sequence in there or did I just misunderstand something? I, you know, I think it looks like they did everything practically. So it looks like they took props and put them in tanks of water mm-hmm. and then did super, uh, superimposed it over the film. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it's animation, but it's not. Yeah. Neat. It's anyway, I was impressive a fan. effects. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I, I think this is this is a lot of fun. There's not much substance to this. We do have more with radiation and more with you know the the radiation causing the creature to become created. So it's it's the fears of the atomic age, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of the style, reading people's thoughts afterwards, it, I, I see James Bond getting brought up a lot, and that hadn't occurred to me because to me, like from the very beginning, I was like, oh, this is just Hitchcock. Like this is mm. if Hitchcock made a monster movie, kind of, you know, <laughs> like the way that like the directing style, the editing style, the ways that it builds and releases suspense. I was just like, this is just Hitchcock. 
you know, but now that that thought has been put into my head of uh, the James Bond comparison instead, maybe that's why I had a hard time caring at all about the (laughs) actual plot because fun fact slash hot take, I cannot stand any James Bond film I've ever seen. So maybe that's where that is coming from. But there was a, like that scene where they're tied up and like, there's a dynamite going off and it's just like, to me, just like classic Hitchcock stuff. Yeah. I thought that was pretty, pretty fun, but I actually, so the ending of this film, I, I didn't quite understand how what happened at the end. And <laughs> I wanted to get your take on it because t- I thought that there was a line, like the guy goes to a meeting to like talk about how they can utilize Dogura to their potential. And I was like, uh, okay, cool. And then, you know, rereading the plot summary as I often do to make sure I understood everything. It says that they killed it. And then he was going to go talk about how they can use it after it's, I'm just very confused. I'm not sure what happened there. I think what, what the way I read the ending was that he was uh, heading to talk to the UN to talk about the need for all the countries of the world to come together. You know, in the face of this incident, we, we realized Mm -hmm. that we need to uh, have better communication and we need to be ready to come together to face. I got you. Okay. I thought that they were literally going to exploit this like carbon sucking (laughs) machine for something. I don't know. I was like, uh, okay. (laughs) No, that's, that's the, that's what I, what the way I read it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That would have been funny. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, sure. (laughs) I, again, it's a this is a pretty thin film. I don't know that mm-hmm. there's as much to really dig into in it. I I liked it a lot. I thought it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. But there's not there's not much there, right? Yeah, uh, I, I definitely dug the style. It felt like I was watching Japanese Hitchcock, which I was a fan of, and I yeah. really liked all the monster stuff and the special effects. But if I'm being completely honest, as as soon as we got more than five minutes worth of like diamond talk i was just like i just (laughs) i don't care like i can't make myself care about this like well and i I felt like the the diamond industry stuff just kept it was so inconsistent the way they were dealing with it it kept coming back and it just kept like going back and forth i did really enjoy the like fev fatale character i thought she Uh was great but yeah she was good yeah you know yeah but there but again the the diamond gang was they seemed like idiots honestly so <laughs> i don't know that they felt like much of a threat so. i like the guy that was constantly having an anxiety attack that was calling everybody bro <laughs> that, that was fun yeah. i like that guy it was relatable yeah i yeah i i enjoy this film i i don't think it's it's gonna you know be one of the best ones but the the special effects are outstanding yeah I think yeah. it's worth a look. And if you can keep up with it better than I did, then uh, more power to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I will say that, you know, Robert Dunham, who plays Mark Jackson, his Japanese, at least to my untrained ears, felt fairly, you know, solid. Yeah, he was very confident with it. Like uh-huh. for a second, I was like assuming it was dubbed. I was like, no, nah, I think he's really talking. That's yeah. really cool. You know, yeah. that was yeah. nice. Yeah, no, that was that was that was fun. So. No, these are these are three films that I think you know. Again, uh, Matango is definitely the best of the three, but I like that these are all three films that are really different in style to the uh, the films we talked about last. Uh, yeah, I agree. These these feel like excursions into different ideas and different mm-hmm. uh, styles and different genres that I think are largely successful. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I had fun going through these for sure. Yeah, this was great. This is great. Well, Celeste, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. Of course. Yeah. I always have a good time talking films this in depth with people, which is kind of a rare opportunity. So I am excited to hopefully do this again for what I think is the 
third and final installment exactly. for doing these in threes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. There's so some think, cool looking stuff ahead. So yeah, we've got three more coming up, and uh, there are going to be some some wild and wacky exploits uh, coming up. So that'll be a lot of fun. I hope so. <laughs> Well, as we close out, I just want to thank all of our Patreon supporters again for supporting the show. And uh, I'd like to thank Criterion Cast again for uh, hosting and for uh, being our platform for uh, getting the show out there. There's so much great content on Criterion Cast, uh, great reviews, especially by Josh Brunstein. Uh, he's doing some great work covering festivals and covering current releases. And of course, there's Criterion Reflections, Criterion Now, a lot of great shows on Criterion Cast. So definitely check them out at Criterion cast.com celeste again thank you for joining me where can people find you online so i am on youtube on instagram both of those are uh, at celeste la cabra and my letterbox is letterbox.com slash inhuman ecstasy so you can find me over there awesome i'm uh, very excited to to have had this conversation with you and uh, we'll definitely be uh, talking again uh, very soon so thanks awesome thank you so much you can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at Patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at Patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss on a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.